Millions in ads. The Chinese regime is pouring money into pumping out propaganda. Its medium, legacy U.S. media, disguised as opinion pieces. China Daily's ad inserts trace back to the Chinese Communist Party. But what's the goal? Reports point to the millions spent ahead of U.S. elections, aiming to sway public opinion. Those ads highlighting instances of China's success in other countries and pushing policies that favor Beijing. From Trump to the head of Britain's intelligence agency, officials are sounding the alarm. What does this mean for democracy? Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Despite the U.S. government's current eye on China, Beijing is still pulling out tricks to lobby influence with Americans. One of its most recent tactics, tapping into local media. Here are the details. China Daily, the Chinese Communist Party's top propaganda outlet, is paying big bucks for ads in over a dozen U.S. newspapers. These ads look very much like opinion articles. Among the newspapers printing them are some of the most influential publications, Time Magazine, The Financial Times, Foreign Policy, and The Los Angeles Times. The paid ads come in the form of news-like supplements titled China Watch, but without exception, they all contain a pro-Beijing spin on contemporary events. One insert from USA Today last June touted Chinese leader Xi Jinping's 2015 visit to a U.S. school. The headline described the visit as having left an indelible mark on students. And another one, posted last November in Time magazine, four pages of flattering coverage of China's leadership and economic growth in a bid to lure foreign investment. According to its latest filing with the U.S. Department of Justice, China Daily spent over $1.2 million on such advertising. That was over a six-month span from May to October last year. But where did the money come from? The filing shows that China Daily's revenue for the same period grossed more than $5 million, with 98% of the sum funded by its Beijing headquarters. Profits from subscriptions totaled only about $10,000. A China affairs analyst is sending out a word of caution. The American political establishment, both legislative and executive, should be more conscious of the fact that a foreign totalitarian party's propaganda cannot pass for free speech. The U.S. government listed China Daily as both a foreign agent and a foreign mission of the communist regime. Under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, any entity listed must disclose its financial activities to the U.S. Justice Department every six months. As more details emerge, one example of pushback came from then-Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. He said at the time the State Department designated six more China-based media companies as foreign missions. All of them operate in the U.S. He said the move seeks to counter propaganda from communist countries. He added at the time the decision isn't to restrict what outlets can publish in America, but to, quote, ensure that American people can differentiate between news written by a free press and propaganda distributed by the Chinese Communist Party itself. But it seems it's not just opinion pieces. Chinese state-run media have also had a hand in influencing U.S. elections. That's according to reports filed with the government. Let's zoom in on Iowa, known for its rolling cornfields. The state found itself at the center of political intrigue in 2018. Regrettably, we found that China has been attempting to interfere in our upcoming 2018 election. 
President Trump tweeting at the time, China is actually placing propaganda ads in the Des Moines Register and other papers made to look like news. Reports also said the four-page supplement aimed to undermine support for the Trump-China trade war. And there was a lot of money on the line. At the time, Iowa farmers were projected to lose around $2 billion from the trade wars. That's according to an Iowa State University study at the time. It expands outside the state, too. China has ramped up its efforts in recent years. Reports filed to the Justice Department under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, or FARA, noting China has spent $280 million over the past six years to influence U.S. politics. That's more than any other foreign country. And it's not just the U.S. Head of British intelligence agency MI5, Ken McCallum, saying in 2020, You might think in terms of the Russian intelligence services providing bursts of bad weather, while China is changing the climate. Over in Australia, donors tied to Beijing directly paid politicians. That's an attempt to shape Australian foreign policy in China's favor. One case in the area involved a politician named Yang Jian, who was elected in 2011 to New Zealand's parliament. That's after he spent 15 years working for Chinese intelligence. His position in parliament involved dealing with China policy. And in Asia, similar situations played out in the lead-up to Taiwan's 2020 presidential election, with reports noting Chinese officials instructed local media outlets to promote the pro-Beijing candidate. While that candidate lost, Beijing has ramped up other influence efforts in Taiwan, including disinformation ahead of the 2022 elections. U.S. lawmakers will move ahead with a bill to get Chinese-owned app TikTok banned in the country. That's according to comments from House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on Sunday. Reports allege the Chinese Communist Party had access to the short video app's user data. Here are the details. House of Representatives Speaker Kevin McCarthy tweeted the news on Sunday amid national security concerns about the short video app, which is owned by China-based company ByteDance. There are growing calls in the United States to ban TikTok or to pass bipartisan legislation to give President Joe Biden's administration legal authority to seek a ban. Devices owned by the U.S. government were recently barred from having the app installed. McCarthy said on Twitter, quote, The House will be moving forward with legislation to protect Americans from the technological tentacles of the Chinese Communist Party. TikTok needs to be an American company with American values. On Thursday, House committee lawmakers from both parties grilled TikTok CEO Shoji Chu for about five hours over concerns involving the app. We do not promote or remove content at the request of the, the Chinese government. Asked if the app has spied on Americans at Beijing's request, Chu said no. But his answer sounded less firm regarding the company's disclosure in December that some China-based ByteDance employees had improperly accessed TikTok user data of two journalists and were no longer employed by the company. Chu said, I don't think that spying is the right way to describe it. He went on to say the reports involved an internal investigation before being cut off. McCarthy also tweeted on Sunday that, quote, It's very concerning that the CEO of TikTok can't be honest and admit what we already know to be true. China has access to TikTok user data. The app has 150 million American users. 
TikTok says it has spent more than $1.5 billion on data security efforts and is contracted with U.S. firm Oracle Corp. to store TikTok's U.S. user data. Wedbush, one of America's leading research firms, says a national ban on TikTok is 90% likely. That's as other Western countries target the app, like France and Sweden. France will ban TikTok from the work phones of civil servants. That's according to the country's civil service minister on Friday. Likewise, Sweden announced Monday it's banning military members from using TikTok on work devices. Is Apple leaving China or staying put? On Monday, Apple CEO Tim Cook met with the Chinese Commerce Minister to discuss the nation's supply chain issues. Cook was in Beijing over the weekend to attend the China Development Forum. The CCP-led event is making a return after the country's extended pandemic lockdown. The forum took place at Diaoyutai State Guest House, a diplomatic complex used to house foreign dignitaries. During the event, Cook openly praised China for its close ties with U.S. iPhone manufacturers. He called it a symbiotic kind of relationship that Apple and China have both enjoyed. He also voiced plans to increase Apple's spending on China's rural education program. Apple, on the other hand, declined to comment on Cook's trip. The U.S. tech giant has relied heavily on China's consumer market and manufacturing capabilities over the years. But as tension continuously escalates between Washington and Beijing, Apple has looked to reduce its supply chain dependence on China. The company is also shifting some production capacity to India. Last year, China imposed a nationwide zero-COVID-19 policy, earmarked by widespread lockdowns. The policy fueled anger among Chinese workers, resulting in severe disruption inside the world's largest iPhone factory, run by Apple supplier Foxconn. China's best-known entrepreneur has returned to China. Jack Ma ending a year-long stay overseas. His re-emergence offers support for the Chinese Communist Party's softening tone toward the private sector after a bruising two-year regulatory crackdown. This as Beijing tries to shore up a battered economy rattled by three years of COVID-19 curbs. Here's more. Alibaba founder Jack Ma has returned to China after spending more than a year overseas. He resurfaced at a school he founded in Hangzhou, also home to his e-commerce titan. Ma's travels abroad, which included Japan and Australia, were viewed as a reflection of the sober mood of China's private businesses. It's our great, great honor. One of the country's country. most outspoken businessmen, he retreated from the limelight after criticizing China's financial regulators in 2020. Some regarded his comments as the catalyst, which triggered a wide-ranging regulatory crackdown by Beijing on tech entrepreneurs. Chinese authorities said in recent months they had ended this crackdown and would instead support the sector. But Chinese entrepreneurs said they saw Ma's decision to stay overseas as a factor hindering confidence. Hong Kong traded shares in Alibaba rose more than 4% after the South China Morning Post reported his return. The U.S. State Department urging Americans and citizens of other countries to reconsider travel to China. That's due to the risk that Chinese authorities could arbitrarily detain foreigners and even cut them off from counselor help. Just this Monday, China's foreign ministry confirmed that a Japanese citizen has been detained. Beijing accused the person of espionage. The person works for a Japanese pharmaceutical company. 
Tokyo is calling on Beijing to release the Japanese national, adding that Chinese authorities should allow the man access to Japanese consulate officials. Taiwan losing another diplomatic ally to China. This time it's Honduras. On Sunday, the Central American country switched its diplomatic relations from Taiwan to Beijing. This means Taiwan maintains diplomatic ties with just 13 countries, most of them developing countries in Central America, the Caribbean and the Pacific. Taiwan's foreign minister accused Beijing of luring Honduras away from the island. The Chinese always try to manipulate the event to distort our diplomatic relations. He said Honduras asked Taiwan for billions of dollars of aid and that it was comparing aid packages from Taiwan and Beijing. Taiwan's president said the island would not engage in meaningless dollar diplomacy with China. Taiwan's people have already proved to the world that we never cower from threats. Taiwan's cooperation and links with allies and like-minded countries to jointly promote international well-being and security will only increase, not decrease. An expert said Beijing's dollar diplomacy would only make the Taiwanese people dislike China more and wouldn't scare away supporters of Taiwan's current ruling party. That party taking a tough stance toward its communist neighbor. Beijing's effort to get Taiwan's allies to switch diplomatic recognition, especially the ones in Central America, are really having an impact on the U.S. These countries sit in America's backyard. It's worsening the tension between the U.S. and China. Taiwan said it would shut down its embassy and consulate in Honduras. An exodus of Western car makers is narrowing options for Russian consumers, and Chinese automakers are quickly filling the gap. Many Russians are left with no choice but to embrace Chinese brands. Here are the details. Russian car buyers have some new brand names to get their heads around. Chinese makers have rushed in to fill the gap left by Western firms that have pulled out. That leaves shoppers to learn about companies like Haval and Geely. So far, the welcome is wary at best. Car buyers Reuters spoke to were unsure about the quality of the new offerings. At the price they're charging, the plastics look cheap, says one man. Auto journalist Sergei Aslanyan says that reflects a Russian perception that Chinese products are down market. If a person in Russia wants to put somebody down, they will say that, hey, you have a Chinese phone or your car is Chinese. At the moment, people are not that hungry to show demand for Chinese products. We need to end up like Cuba first, to turn into pedestrians over the years. And then maybe we will lower the expectations enough for Chinese cars. Sales figures tell a different story, though. Chinese brands now have almost 40% of Russia's car market, up from less than 10% early last year. The main driver may be the simple fact of availability. In the eastern city of Vladivostok, Vladimir Shestak sells Western and Chinese brands. In light of all the recent events, we mostly rely on Geely sales now. But we continue to sell Mercedes cars. Some of them are bought via parallel import. Some are left over stock from before. Russians increasingly have little choice, with most Western brands already gone. Volkswagen's Skoda unit is currently in the final stages of negotiating a deal to sell its assets. 
The departure of such firms was one factor in a near 60% slump in total car sales last year. For many buyers, that means it may soon be a case of go Chinese or catch the bus. Coming up, if Beijing invaded Taiwan, how would Australia, a top U.S. ally, react? I'm sure if we were called upon by the United States to act, uh, then we would do do so. Uh, it's un, you know, almost unbelievable that we wouldn't if we were called upon um, to do so. Is the nation prepared? We sat down with Kevin Andrews, former Australian Minister for Defence, and a contributor with the Epoch Times for his take. That and more in just a minute, here on China In Focus. Welcome back to China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Would Australia defend Taiwan if Beijing invaded the island? And would it follow Washington's lead? We spoke to Kevin Andrews, former Australian Minister for Defence and a contributor with the Epoch Times for details. Kevin Andrews, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. My pleasure. So you recently wrote an article called Australia finally gets the defenses it needs as AUKUS clears final hurdle. Can you expand on that? What are these defenses and what's the final hurdles that have been crossed? When I was defense minister, we had decided that we wanted new submarines by the mid to late 2020s. Uh, with the French arrangements and then all the saga that was surrounding that, that pushed out the possibility of getting a submarine until probably the early to mid 2030s. So that left us with a 10-year additional capability cap on top of an ageing Collins-class submarine. The Collins-class is a diesel-electric submarine. It was good for its day. It's probably functional still, but compared to a nuclear submarine, it's simply not in the same class. So what this arrangement has done has mean, meant that by being able to have a rotation of American and UK submarines from 2027, that capability gap which we identified at the time I was the Defence Minister uh, is in fact being plugged again, but in a, albeit in a different way. And speaking of AUKUS, it seems the US and Australia have also announced plans to develop a hypersonic aircraft. This is the latest in the deal. What's the significance here? The significance is that the pace of change in terms of technology uh, is so rapid that we have to be you know, very much up to date. So uh, nuclear submarines under the sea is obviously part of that, but obviously other nations are testing hypersonic missiles and this opportunity for us to develop uh, hyperson hypersonic warfare through not just missiles, but indeed potentially through planes uh, is really the next generation in terms of what can be achieved in the sky. This sharing of technology between uh, the three countries, uh, Australia, America and the United Kingdom, which is really the most important and significant part of the August arrangements. And on that note of aggression, it seems if we look at the Chinese regime's movements in the area, one area of concern has been the Solomon Islands. They signed that security pact with Beijing and in terms of Australia, what does that mean for Australia? This means that we potentially have uh, a, an aggressive, um, hostile uh, military force on our doorstep. Um, if one goes back to the Second World War, it was the great aspiration of the then Japanese uh, fleet commander to actually control islands 
in the South Pacific, such as the, the Solomons, Samoa, Tonga, etc. Uh, if that was, was to be able to be achieved, you effect, effectively cut off supply lines uh, from a very isolated Australia. Now, what we have now is China seeking to extend its influence into that very same region. It's been uh, trying to, uh, you know, build a port in Papua New Guinea, which has been rejected so far by the government of Papua New Guinea. Uh, we see there's the arrangements in the Solomons. Uh, it's tried in Palau. There has been reports from the outgoing president of Micronesia of bribery of officials and uh, members of parliament or Congress uh, in, in uh, Micronesia. Uh, there is a, there's been building or attempt to build ports and other facilities in countries, uh, Pacific Island countries like Samoa uh, and Tonga. So th this is very much a threat to Australia's security, as I said, in our own backyard. And on that note, in terms of a Beijing invasion of Taiwan, would Australia step in to help or would that be more to see what the U.S. does first and then see what Australia's steps are? My sense is that we will consider what the United States does um, under the uh, arrangements we have with the United States. We're very close to the United States. Um, I'm sure if we were called upon by the United States to act, uh, then we would do do so. Uh, it's un, you know, almost unbelievable that we wouldn't if we were called upon um, to do so. And going back to your article from earlier, you did write that if Taiwan falls to the CCP or the Chinese Communist Party, the security of the Indo-Pacific will be greatly endangered and Australia is not immune from events in our region. What should Australia's next steps be to kind of shore up their own defenses? Well, the first thing Australia must do is what, what it is doing, but continue the pace of this development, and that is to ensure that we have the military equipment necessary to defend Australia and also to act as a deterrent to uh, any aggressive countries that want to break the international rules of the sea, uh, want to invade another country, etc. Uh, secondly, we must act in conjunction uh, with other countries. Uh, that means that there, there might be various agreements or understandings. Uh, AUKUS is just one between Australia uh, and the United Kingdom. Uh, there's the Quad arrangements which involve um, India. There are arrangements with Japan. Uh, there are countries which are not part of these particular arrangements who are nonetheless concerned about what's happening in the China Sea. Uh, Vietnam, for example. Uh, the Philippines, which is uh, increasing its exercises with the United States at the present time. So from my perspective, there's not going to be just one multinational agreement which relates to how we deal with these problems. There'll be a whole number of agreements, AUKUS being just one of them, the Quad being another, uh, and then bilateral arrangements with other countries to ensure that we're acting in concert and we're all acting in a way in which we will deter uh, any, any action which would bring about uh, actual conflict. And expanding on that note, you mentioned AUKUS and also the Quad. And if we look at that area of the Pacific, you have the first island chain that blocks off the Chinese military from really getting into the Pacific. And it seems the Chinese regime has been almost trying to build their own quad around that by maybe with the Solomon Islands and these deals in the Pacific Islands. So what should allies be doing? What should the next steps be there? Well, we have to continue our diplomatic efforts in countries like the Solomons and the other islands in the South Pacific and indeed throughout the Indo-Pacific, the Asian archipelago. Uh, that's important. Um, there's probably a time when 
we regarded those diplomatic efforts as kind of second tier. I'm going back, you know, decades or so. Uh, but they are, for Australia's perspective, very much first tier activities now, and we have to continue those diplomatic efforts. Uh, secondly, we can't take the region for granted. Uh, we have to be in there and we have to be um, saying that, you know, we're, we're your nearest best neighbour. We're the ones who have been there when there have been natural disasters in the Indo-Pacific. It's Australian defence personnel who have gone in to help and reminding uh, these countries, not, not in any sort of aggressive or patronising way, but reminding them that uh, we have been there, we are peaceful and democratic in our intentions, we're not there to you know, establish a military base uh, and to buy off uh, the country and then you know leave if we need to. Uh, we're there for the long term as we have been and that's what's going to be most important for the welfare and the peace and the prosperity of their people. Kevin Andrews, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.